0: This podcast is brought to you by the Health Sciences Doctoral Training Centre at King's College London.
1: Hi, you're listening to PostDocalypse, a podcast by postgrad students about all things postgrad. We're a team of PhD students at King's College London trying to navigate this crazy world and we'll be sharing the highs and lows of postgraduate study. My name is Alexandra Lauterescu and I'm a PhD student in perinatal imaging. Today I'm joined by Elisa Bran who's doing her PhD on 1st rank symptoms of schizophrenia. going to be talking about her research as well as more generally about the topic of women in science. Also joining us on our panel this time are Harris Schweib, who's doing a PhD in medical imaging, and Katie Begg, doing a PhD in cancer genetics. So, Elisa... First rank schi- symptoms of schizophrenia. What's what's all that about? <laughs> right. Okay. So, I mean,
2: when people think of schizophrenia, the classic kind of symptoms that they think of are psychosis. Mm-hmm. So that includes things like hallucinations and delusions. And basically, first rank symptoms are one of the first kind of attempts to. Um, describe these various different kinds of experiences. Mm-hmm. So there are about five, or yeah, I think five of the 1st rank symptoms, and they include things such as auditory verbal hallucinations, uh, hearing voices, um, and, but also things like thought insertion. So you have this idea that somebody else is putting the thoughts into your head, like oh, they're wow. not your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's even one called alien control of movement. Basically, it's when you, your, mo- your hand is moving, but it doesn't feel like it's your hand. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay
1: so what are you what are you looking to find what's your research question so my
2: research question is basically looking at the neurocognitive basis of these sorts of experiences and what I mean by that is um, what's essentially happening in the brain what mm-hmm. parts of the brain are active which parts of the which areas of the brain are talking to each other mm-hmm. during these experiences uh,
1: do you have any any rough idea of what you might expect to find well
2: we do and then when you think about um, you know there are, all these symptoms are kind of quite different so you've got mm-hmm. verbal hallucinations which obviously must involve parts of the brain that are involved in language Mm -hmm. and then you've also got you know on the other end you know alien control of movement that's heavy movement based you know Uh, so there are different parts of the brain involved but it seems Mm that there are there's also must be some kind of common link because all of these experiences have a similar theme which Mm -hmm. is that you experience them as happening you know not by you it's not you Mm -hmm. who's doing Mm -hmm. them that's what you experience and so this kind of sense of otherness or this loss of control over these experiences um we think it has a specific um, basis in a certain part of the brain that's that's really interesting uh so are
1: you using kind of Imaging MRI, yeah. or so
2: not MRI. <laughs> so we're actually using uh, electroencephalography EEG, mm-hmm. and I guess the idea is that eventually um, we are trying to look for the basis of this otherness experience, and trying to develop something called neurofeedback therapies. Oh wow! Okay. Which basically is a type of therapy that involves some kind of real-time demonstration of brain activity and patients or individuals can learn to adjust their behavior based on this feedback. So basically they get this little video game that's based on their brain behavior and you know when they start thinking differently the game changes and so they're literally changing these games with their
1: mind and it's quite fun that's that's really interesting (laughs) actually would that be something that would be able to people would be able to use in clinics or hospitals or so
2: i think it it really depends i mean so it's it's, i mean neurofeedback therapy has been around for a long time but it hasn't been particularly mainstream Mm -hmm. i think because people still just don't know what's going on Um, and it's been used a lot for adhd and it has been shown to be quite useful um, but with psychosis, that's an incredibly complicated mm-hmm. disorder. And I don't know if it would necessarily be an alternative to something like talking therapy or medication. Um, but more likely, it's something that could be used to help patients r- be rehabilitated into mm-hmm. normal everyday life.
1: So in a way to, to complement talking therapies Absolutely. and
2: medication. Absolutely. So when they, after they've left a unit, you know, um, they can go back home and have this therapy alongside their reintegration. And uh, it can be just
1: top up (laughs) I think I think that's absolutely fascinating Mm. Um, you were telling me um, just before we started that you're also doing something to do with uh, hypnosis
2: yeah so that's a funny one Uh, so basically before we start working with patients and you know looking around at their brain activity we want to kind of test that um, this area of the brain that we are interested in is actually involved in these experiences so basically what we're doing is we're taking healthy individuals and we are creating the experiences for them so these are people who don't have any psychiatric symptoms Mm -hmm, at mm -hmm. all and we basically use hypnosis to model these symptoms so we give them the experience of for instance hearing voices Mm -hmm. yeah and then we look at that what's happening in the brain during that experience yeah
1: that's that's really interesting so in terms of in terms of the um let's say patient population that this could be applicable for would it just be people with schizophrenia or would it be people who are experiencing psychosis maybe for other reasons like you know bipolar or
2: absolutely i mean at the moment um you know i work specifically i'm looking specifically at schizophrenia Mm -hmm. surely you know you know schizophrenia is a really complicated disorder you know and so it's hard to know whether you know psychosis and schizophrenia is that really different from psychosis in mania or depression you know I don't know but that would Mm. be an interesting thing I don't know if that's enough for my PhD I think (laughs) I've already got enough to deal with but maybe sometime in the future it'd be interesting brilliant
1: that's that's really interesting thank you Lisa that was really interesting on that note I want to involve our panel in the discussion so Katie what do you think about this So I was once hypnotised, actually. Oh,
3: that's cool. Yeah, but I don't think it worked. It didn't really affect me. I think we were in a big group of, say, like 30 people. This was when I was at school. Um, And a hypnotist came and said, "Okay, anyone who wants to be hypnotised, get up on stage. And he told us to to clasp our hands together. Hmm. And he said, "Okay, now you can't open them. And you there were lots of people who couldn't prize their hands apart, but mm. I could do it instantly. Well, so it's interesting that you say that because um, before we
2: look for participants, we do massive screenings, and we mm. get lots of people to come in and do this mass hypnosis session. And uh, basically what we find at the end of this screening session, we calculate scores for people based on how they respond to these suggestions, hypnotic suggestions, and basically what we find is that it's quite the characteristic of being hypnotised or responding to the suggestions when you're hypnotised is actually quite normally distributed. So some people really don't respond to it, some people really respond to it, and most people are just somewhere in between. So, Had, so you're probably quite low on the scale. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Sorry, that just, like, triggered something in my head. In, has anyone, Someone must have done this sort of psychosocial research, seeing people who are susceptible to being hypnotised and then perhaps their spending habits, right? (laughs) Like correlating that with like advertising effects.
2: Okay, so so are you kind of like asking how does being suggestible to hypnosis how does that Affect relate the rest to of your personality traits? yeah yeah or the yeah. rest of the so decisions then, you make so i mean in psychology research there's certain theories about personality so one of the main ones is the big five theory which is basically you know people have varying degrees of neuroticism uh-huh. extro- extroversion introversion these sorts of things and uh, they have correlated like hypnotic suggestibility um, and it doesn't seem to really relate to any of those so it seems to be in a league of its own is
0: that then just like a sixth <laughs> Trait. well yeah i it, mean it yeah. just
2: if you respond to suggestions under hypnosis basically all it means is you respond to suggestions and under the hypnosis. hypnosis it doesn't really mean you're gullible or anything like that yeah yeah even though you might want to think that but
3: no <laughs>
0: okay <damn.
3: laughs> so what else could it mean what what could it be if someone was more what's it suggest suggestible yeah, yeah so, so yeah hypnotically
2: suggestible i mean what it basically means is that when you are in a hypnotic state which is essentially a a deeply relaxed state um, you are more open to suggestions from other people so if I were to make you feel really really relaxed and open I mean really relaxed and you know kind of open-minded then malleable (laughs) yeah kind of I mean but the thing is it, it always involves the individual being open to it like if you come to a session and you're incredibly skeptical mm-hmm. um you know the chances are you won't relax the chances are you you will be overthinking things and that can really affect the experience so uh it's a lot to do with your belief actually like mm-hmm. if you believe you can be hypnotized then you will it's, it's, a, it's a funny one but anyway i don't do a phd in hypnosis i just use it to to model these psychiatric symptoms so.
0: um and how effective do you find it as a modeling tool then given that uh, to somebody who doesn't know anything about it or only knows about it through movies that it seems really susceptible pardon the pun to poor data right (laughs) like that sort of like qualitative phenomena or experience seems easy to mock or fake Mm. rather than taking somebody's blood pressure or their weight
2: so okay yeah very good question so i mean the point is is first of all we do do these screenings so we only test people who are really suggestible hypnotically suggestible so we get in people who are high on the scale and so already we there's some belief that they will have you know, realistic experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, We do qualitative interviews with them, so we ask them to describe their experiences. These people are very descriptive actually so it's not like oh i heard a voice no they Got can, they can yeah, say it's yeah. a male voice it has a low pitch high pitch It comes from across the room it's inside my head yeah. you know they can be quite descriptive which makes you believe that okay maybe it's more than just their imagination you know yeah. but also i mean if that's that's still very subjective but yeah. on top of that we do do neuroimaging. we use eeg and the point is is that when you hypnotize somebody versus when you don't hypnotize them you do see differences in the brain so that's the the final nail in the coffin hopefully
3: So what do you see on the EEG, in the images? Do they match up to what a real psychotic experience would be or Mm. have you not quite got to that stage? Yeah, so that's hopefully what I'll be
2: exploring throughout my PhD. I mean, with EEG, unfortunately, you don't get the nice pretty images that you would with fMRI. Uh, Um, You just get waves, which are, to some people, that's still pretty. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Not as, uh, you know, vivid and, um, you know, exciting, but um, it's still very interesting. And uh, we are particularly looking at... Um, electrical, you know, brain activity in certain parts of the brain. So, uh, we we have the hypothe- hypothesis that this particular region called the supplementary motor area, which is in the frontal lobe, that it is involved in that. Ability to identify whether an action is yours or not which is basically Mm. described as the sense of agency or sense of control and uh, if that area of the brain isn't active or is less active during these experiences so when we've hypnotized this person to make them believe that their arm is being controlled by some alien uh, we would expect that part of the brain to be a bit more quiet
0: have you sorry have you thought about um in those cases perhaps part of your cohort being there might be hard to find patients who've had part of the frontal lobe uh excised for other reasons for tumor or things like that because then if they physically don't have that region and then they do you see what i mean
2: yeah i mean i guess that's an interesting thing i mean you know anyway the brain is plastic and uh you know, So I would say if somebody has had... I don't know why anyone would have that part of the brain As in if they had some way. sort of tumour, that's right. what yeah, I meant. A or a
3: stroke accident. or something like Or, or yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, a stroke who, would who be was a good was one. That, the famous story of that guy who... um In the 1800s? Phineas, 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 Gage. Phineas Gage. Yeah, yeah. That's that had yeah. all the way through. Yeah, Turned yeah, into an I think, actually, if you look at the pictures,
2: it went through his eye socket beautifully and right to the back of his brain. And I actually think if you look at where it went, I think it would have missed that area of the brain. Yeah. Oh, so okay. maybe... So you can't <laughs> recruit him. Yeah, I think it went through more of the areas that apparently more involved in emotional processing. So he was quite a, a feisty man in the <laughs> end. Yeah.
0: In, your, in the conversation you had with Ali before, you talked about how this um, feedback yeah. method isn't, like, mainstream. So say... It's neurofeedback. You, neurofeedback, yeah, yeah as, as a form of therapy, right? Mm-hmm. So... Something that's to me it sounds unconventional yes. or at least cutting edge. how does that become mainstream? mainstream? How do you make that part of routine clinical practice? because in my research and i 'm guessing Katie 's research in genetics as well that 's like a an important question to ask because in our cases we have say cutting edge technology which clinicians or clinics aren 't used to employing routinely um, it 's difficult for, for our sort of research to fit into the normal randomized controlled trial.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, I think we're not at the the stage where we're doing randomised controlled trials yet, yeah. or at least not here. I mean, I do know that there are some labs across the world that are doing it, yeah. um, and you know, neurofeedback does work. Um, and it, you know, but how re- do you know? Well, you <laughs> see the results. I mean, people improve. I mean, whether okay, it, yeah. whether it means you know, is it the neurofeedback or is it some placebo effect? I, uh-huh. I, you know, anyway, neurofeedback is something that I hope to explore later in my PhD. At the moment, I'm just still doing uh, the EEG with the hypnosis etc but um yeah it does you know anyway it's a funny one because you know it's something for me i still am learning about myself and is it theoretically possible and you know the more i investigate into it the more i think you know it is possible but you know what's
3: how does it work i don't know yet (laughs) i'll tell you in four years (laughs) so i think this is actually really interesting this is something that i'm interested in in terms of neuroscience as opposed Mm -hmm. to other disciplines yeah because it's such a complex subject that we don't have enough of a grasp on Mm. at the moment so I feel like sometimes when it's going to be um for treatments or clinical practice to do with neuroscience it's got to be different it's got to be something that clinicians aren't used to Mm. whereas Mm. with something like cancer you can see it you know exactly what's going on you can you can measure it it's right there whereas for something like psychosis because we don't we don't know enough about what's and going on and it's one of these things that is kind of on the fringe
2: between the tangible and the intangible yeah, it's totally. the brain and the mind yeah, and yeah. You, you never quite know how to bridge that gap really mm. so yeah
3: and there are lots of new studies that i've been reading about recently to do with using psychedelic drugs for yeah. things like ptsd yeah, and, and depression and depression yeah. and that is looking really amazing yeah it's very exciting there are policy makers who are really struggling with the idea of taking on something that's completely not what anyone's used to mm. and you know, a bit crazy. Well, I think you can overcome that anyway. I'm not an expert in the
2: psychedelics, but surely... That's not what you told me earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Quiet, Harris. Um, (laughs) But, um, you know, they'll find a way. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure they will.
1: And on that note, I want to thank Lisa and the panel for that discussion. Remember, if you have any thoughts about what we've talked about, you can tweet us on at postocalypse18. Next up, we'll be talking about women in science. But first...
3: tell us your nerdy thing.
2: So my nerdy thing is uh, late at night when no one else is around at work all our lights are on sensors so they go off and then I see how far I get down the corridor without tripping them.
1: <laughs> That's brilliantly nerdy, thank you. A recent study suggested that half of the people in the UK can't name a famous woman in science. Recently, King's established the global institute for women's leadership, chaired by Julia Gillard, the only woman to have served as Prime Minister of Australia. The institute aims to better understand and address the causes of women's underrepresentation in leadership positions. So today we want to talk about our personal experience of women in science. So Elisa, what's your experience? Yeah, so
2: interestingly, I mean, I... Got into science thinking that it was something that not a lot of women do for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as I got into it, I realized my like 80 percent of my first year of undergrad were women. So it's interesting. What did you do in so I did biology. to start oh, wow. with. So okay. it's quite high um, number of ladies.
1: Um, See, I did. I did psychology. So mine were vast majority women with. Yeah. About two three men probably. that's an
2: interesting one and uh, eventually when I went to do my masters um, I did it in cognitive neuroscience which is somewhere like between neuroscience mm-hmm. and psychology and that was quite a nice even split between women and men uh, but the funny the funny thing was right um, was that uh, when I was applying to do PhDs, um, I came up with a few different project proposals. And one of them I came up with really last minute because the funding deadline was coming up. And I just thought of an idea and it was a developmental project. Mm-hmm. Um, and my supervisor was a bit surprised. He was like, I didn't know you were, you know, into developmental stuff. And he was like, so, I mean, why don't you go check out the developmental department and see if you gel with people there because we need to find your secondary supervisor mm-hmm. there. And so I went along and they were all women, mm. all mm-hmm. women. And then I just, and I'd been working in an institute that was 50 50, right? And then the other alternative was to do something more computational. Yeah. So I went over to that department, all, all men. Yeah. All I men. Mean, and that was really bizarre.
1: I mean, I, I, I moved from psychology, which yeah. is all women, to medical imaging mm. uh, in the biomedical engineering department, yeah. which is all men.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So even yeah. though that there, there may be, um, I mean, we're lucky we're in an area where there are tend to be a few more women. I mean, Mm. then none. Uh, But it still seems that there's like some gender differences in terms of areas that people are interested in. I don't know if that's something Mm -hmm. that other people have noticed. But um, yeah, anyway, I did quite consciously not choose that developmental Mm. um, PhD because I I just didn't want... I guess I just didn't want to be feeding into stereotypes. I mean, it's interesting. I would have really enjoyed that project. But I mean, that's a, a little bit of positive discrimination, I guess. I mean, you know, I don't know. It was a funny one. I'm just, I'm very happy with the project I chose in the end, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So, yes, that's actually really interesting because um, coming from Romania, Romania actually has quite a high percentage of it's women in, scientists. Yeah. Also,
2: I heard that Latvia is the highest number of women to men in science. Which, is it? Yeah. Like 52% oh, of researchers are, are female in Latvia, apparently. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think
1: it's, it's quite high. In Romania, I think it's specifically um, engineers and computer scientists. That's amazing. But, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to compare it and why to. Why would that be, do you think? I mean, um, I'm not. I'm not an expert in the field, but as far as I know, so I think during communism, because everyone had to have a job, um, I think a lot of women were encouraged to go into fields that are not, you know, traditionally fields for women, like computer science. So I was wondering, Elisa, do you feel like do you feel like your gender has influenced in any way? I don't know, maybe your career so far, or do you think it will influence your career from now on? That's interesting. I mean, definitely, it's
2: something I think about in the future. I definitely want to make a career out of this. You know, I I want to be in science for the long haul. Mm-hmm. Um, but last year I got married, and that's definitely something that um, my husband and I are now talking a lot more mm-hmm. about. Like, how are we going to navigate him working, me working, mm-hmm. you know, and working in environments that are not always stable you know you're going from one grant to another grant from one institution to another institution like how do you do that and have like a cohesive happy family i don't know Mm. and that's something that um i think you know I think there are resources available. Like I, I know that I've attended anyway myself. I've attended workshops that like, like King's offers, which is about parenting and and doing
1: research. I know I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. I don't.
2: I'm not even pregnant, but that's what we do, don't yeah, we, I mean, women? I, we plan. I,
1: I think it's I think it's amazing that we have those resources available. So yeah. I can't remember. I can't remember which uh, building I saw this in, but I remember seeing this wall that had just pictures of inspirational women mm. who have families, but also have amazing careers in Kings. And I just thought that that was just... That just made me stop and be like, Mm. oh, so it's possible? Like, it's not... I feel like women often have, you know, this idea that they have to choose between family and career.
2: I think that is true. And I definitely... I have have friends who, you know, they say, well, I don't want to have kids, you know. And I, I, you know, absolutely, that's absolutely fine. Mm -hmm. Like, if you don't want to have kids, that's fine. But I know also part of them saying that because they want to make sure that they can have a career. Mm-hmm. And I, I just feel like it's that's really unfair that women have to make that choice in this day and age.
1: I mean, yes, yeah, of, of course. But I do think that they're also opening a lot of doors are being opened now in terms of like you know men taking paternal leave Absolutely. and which i think is amazing yeah and
2: i think that one of the key things is you know it needs to be a massive cultural shift it's not just something that happens in science it also happens in it needs to happen in many other fields mm-hmm. and you know you want to make sure that you know if you're getting maternity leave that your, your partner who's working in a different field that they also get some some leave as well you mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. so that they can also be involved and it's uh, it has to be from all different angles that's i guess why it's so complicated
1: no exactly well, i mean i think i think i read somewhere that like i think about half of all academic staff are women mm-hmm. uh but only four percent of the vice chancellors at russell group universities are women uh so Which. i think it's a question of you know when you get to higher positions i feel mm-hmm. like that's when the gender gap becomes a bit more of an I I
2: wonder like I mean right now for our generation there's certainly a lot more advocacy for this for women in science I wonder if in 20 years time those statistics will change I mean hopefully yeah I mean hope so yeah so maybe it'll just be a question of watching Mm. this
3: space so what about you Katie so when I when I did my undergrad I also did biological sciences kind of like you Lisa but it it was very very even and I didn't even think about the fact that You know, Mm. there were perhaps more male lecturers than there were female lecturers, Mm. because at my level, it was totally the same. Mm. Um, But then I think I've been lucky in that I've had like a mixture of of male supervisors, for example, and female supervisors, and they've all been... um, you know, great in their own way. Yeah. And so I've never really thought about it. But the one the one thing that I really do notice that gets me, it really, really gets me, is that <laughs> I can see the twinkle in your yeah. eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I'm at a seminar or a talk or a conference the people who ask the questions are the oh, men. Absolutely, that's oh. true. But that's something that I I feel in myself.
2: So like very often, too. I'm sitting in the audience and I'm like, I really want to ask this question, but yeah. I just don't have the guts to put my hand in the air. Yeah. Like it's it's. But the thing is that is then not an issue to do with. I don't know. Maybe it's a both sides, but it's very
3: much an internal issue. Of the yeah. person. So yeah. I, I've been trying to go to a couple of workshops. It sounds yeah. really. I don't know how it how it sounds. It sounds a bit... Um, sounds good and empowering. <laughs> I've been trying to go to workshops that are meant for women to be more assertive. Yeah. Because mm. um, if Is that like
0: a training workshop? Uh, yeah, they're kind
3: of how to um, be, you know, decisive and yeah, confident yeah. in, in yourself. And direct. Yeah, yeah, and I and I have those... Um, in my mind, whenever I go to a conference or a talk now, I always think, what question can I ask? Is this a valuable question? You know, I'm not just asking anything just yeah. for the same right, thing. Right, yeah, Which yeah, a yeah, lot yeah. of people and do. A lot of people, yeah. do. Oh. And a fair amount of men yeah. do it, and It's Fair enough. Yeah. Um, but I always make a point of asking the question if I have it in my mind because mm. you know you've got to you've yeah, got it to go be. for it, You've got to be the change that we you want, want to, to see in the world. You know? Thanks, guys. I, I think that
0: the I think the pre-screening you do in your brain, not only as like say an underrepresented group, but just as a scientist, it's perhaps not the most helpful thing.
2: You mean the overthinking? Yeah,
0: yeah. or like doubting yourself? Like, yeah, you're gonna say you might say something stupid, but that's a Fantastic way to learn, like oh, especially as
3: scientists. Yeah, right?
0: especially as scientists. Like if you're constantly filtering yourself, you might be uh, prematurely filtering ideas mm. that you know you should have expressed. So i it happens a lot. Like um, even like at the classroom level, yeah. right? I remember like in high school, I was always like the loudmouth, always with my hand up, you know, shouting out answers.
2: Just so you know, so was I, but I did yeah. go to an all-girls school, so. Oh, it's, yeah. anyway. <laughs> so no one to
0: judge you, or you judge each other equally. Yeah, not but <laughs> I, I I think that perhaps it was to the detriment of my classmates, but at least for me, it was helpful. Yeah, absolutely. The sort of unashamedness of it all, being like, oh, I'll try, I'll give it a go. And then you get that sort of instant Mm -hmm. feedback. But there's also, I guess, a responsibility on the person themselves or myself of being, I guess, robust enough to get that feedback. Like if you do make a fool of yourself, you have sort of have to... Deal with that side of it so as this, well.
2: This kind of reminds me of this uh, kind of concept that was devised by Sheryl Sandberg. So she's the COO of Facebook. Mm, yeah. And she published a book. She did an amazing TED talk to begin with, but then she, that um, emerged into a book like a couple of years ago called Lean In. And it was just generally talking about how women um, often don't take opportunities. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe times have changed a little bit since then, but I mean, I think it's still, you know, when I read that book, I found it to be really. Um, yeah, awakening, if I can say that, enlightening. There are many things or habits that I have, unconscious habits that I just don't realize I'm doing, you know, just not allowing myself to literally lean
3: into situations. Yeah. Yeah, and this could be why, I mean, this could be one of the reasons why when we look at the people who are at the top of their game, who are the supervisors or who get all the grants, they tend to be men because mm. men tend to go for those opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also another thing to say is that you know, of the women who do
2: lean in who do take advantage of opportunities um, in some cases you know they really get labelled as not being assertive but as being bossy or pushy or manipulative and it is really you know that's something that I have actually faced you know when I uh, go for things or when I've applied for you know grants or put myself forward for talks or whatever you know people are like oh okay showing sure off or something like this and you know I just don't know if I own that.
3: Yeah I mean maybe yeah, guys can deal heads. with that kind of banter a bit better but <laughs> I mean. But, but I, I don't know yeah happens to guys as yeah. much I think there is um, there was a study done a little while ago about what students thought of their lecturers mm. and they were so much more harsh yeah. on the women and they were yeah, them yeah. so much more stick for you know being loud in their lectures or yeah. being mean on their homework they yeah. got really really nasty comments yeah.
0: there was a like a, an informal thing I do not remember where I read it I don't know if it was like on Twitter or something but it was like a lecturer sharing. Uh, um, the evaluation forms that you get yeah, at the end yeah, of courses I I well. and I, I can remember she brought her child in for the lecture I, I think she couldn't arrange uh, childcare because I think her partner's also a professor at the university or something mm-hmm. and then like quite a few of the students mentioned it on the course evaluation as the negative really? like it was really unprofessional yada 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 and then on the same Twitter thread male professor had said like oh well I've had positive comments whenever I've had my kid in yes, class and they thought so it was like wrong. a funny thing or how <laughs> cute it is that da, da, da.
3: so that's the thing it's uh, not just it's that, that the, percent, yeah. yeah it's not just that mm. the environment is not supportive um and it's not just that women are not assertive enough but it's the the perception that you get from being in that position mm. of Absolutely. power that's completely warped
2: mm. and the thing is I, I mean I guess I'm Hopeful. Um, that sounded really, really hopeful, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do think um, things will change, you know, and maybe it will still be tough for like our generation in the sense of really getting to the top. Um, but, you know, hopefully you know when the younger generations like it will just be not just normal in science but normal across many other different fields yeah. and like even in home like it will just be more equal you know these sorts of things yeah, and yeah. so from a very young age people will just not
3: be bothered to see women in more kind of leadership positions there are lots of things that are changing like the um, MRC grants for example now they don't take into account if you've had a career break they don't oh, Wow, that's amazing that a negative maybe that's why I I didn't why? know that was really? ever considered oh okay <laughs> But yeah. that used to be a thing. If if a woman took a year out of science, that's a year wasted essentially, and there's yeah. a, a year out of touch with science. Yeah. But there are also things. Did you see? Um, they interviewed little kids and asked them to draw what a what scientist they looked to, like. Really, and it was yeah. a guy in a and white glove coat. Something. No, no, it no. wasn't. Half of them did a little woman stick man. Yeah, yeah, so stick woman. Good. And half of them did a, a guy stick man, which yeah. is And was it, was it half and half like boys and girls? I think it was pretty much half and half, which has definitely changed from when we were kids, That's for example. So I volunteered for a thing recently called Soapbox Science, If you guys oh, yeah, heard of it? yeah, I've heard about it. So yeah. it was um, it's set up by these two women scientists mm. um, to change the perceptions a little bit. And yeah. they hire uh, some amazing talkers to talk about their research in a friendly way way basically so we were on South Bank I wasn't talking by the way I was just volunteering but it was still we're great too shy, <laughs> Um, and I was with um, a scientist called Professor Joyce Harper, who is amazing, talking about fertility. Um, but I was speaking to the crowd and, you know, asking what they thought about it. And the little kids just loved it Aww. all. And mm. it was so great. And one of the um, dads came up to me afterwards and said, that was amazing. That's going to really help my little girl. Because she said she wanted to be yeah. a scientist. And I just really want to encourage this. Yeah. So I yes, like, yes, I that's think another one. The future's hopeful. Yeah, <laughs> and I
0: think, I think that's a really important point because... Mm. I think a lot of the initiatives or efforts that are made at say university level or college level I feel are a bit too late. Mm. Yeah. Um yeah. because if you really because really it's we want to change people's attitudes, mm. right? And attitudes don't really change that much at that age, mm. especially things that are fundamental like career aspirations or long-term life planning. That is really, you know, the dreams that you want to give children. Mm. You give them two children, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, and so when, you know, you ask your little, whatever, five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? they The opportunities are whatever the limits of their imaginations are. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that is like a fantastic way of doing it.
2: I think another point also to mention is... Uh i don 't know what the exact term should be, but sisterhood. <laughs> I guess that's the only thing I can think of, because I remember going to a talk once about women in science, and uh, one woman in the audience was very like adamant like that there isn't a problem, hmm. like there's no problem like i 'm a female scientist, I 've never been told I can 't do this, I can 't do that. I should also say like she was from a wealthy background, hmm. um, her parents were professionals already, um, and like she just couldn't understand why we needed to have this kind of training. And I remember I didn't confront her in that moment. Maybe I should have been a bit more assertive. <laughs> but I do remember going up to the speaker and telling the speaker like I was really grateful for the thing um, because you know I do think that there are many women who don't have who do have these issues. Like they do face that kind of confrontation when they are yeah. trying to go for their dreams and whatever. And you know, women who don't experience that—that's great. I mean, it's good that you you feel free and that you don't feel held back in any way, but. It's important not to, yeah. you know, you need to check your down, privilege. Yeah, you need to check your privilege, absolutely. And you know, it's what is more painful than you know being in a male environment that's degrading to a woman is women not supporting
1: each other. That's even more painful and absolutely. upsetting to see. So yeah, come on, ladies. So that concludes our podcast today. Thank you for joining us. It's good to hear that so many good and empowering things are happening. Special thanks to Lisa for sharing about her research and to Katie and Harris as well. In our upcoming podcast, we want to talk about all things PhD. So if you'd like to focus on a particular topic or just want to get in contact, then please tweet us at at atprostocalypse18. Thank you for listening. Till next time.